hard work, gun-toting cats atop flame-nostriled unicorns, this is Carbon 4 Brewing in Madison, Wisconsin. Come along and hang out with the guys behind the Fantasy Factory curtain. Be exposed to those backroom, unfiltered meetings where the beer geekery is on point and beer trends are dissected. Welcome to the Carbon 4 Podcast, an unhinged brewery tour. I'm Jonathan Eckelberg, producer whose voice may pop in from time to time if uh, the guys need some course correcting or uh, getting back on topic. Ryan Koga, co-owner, founder, brewmaster. Joe Waltz, quality manager and R&D brewer. Patrick Murphy, uh, head brewer. And, and recipe and developer. Recipe. Talk yeah. about Carbon 4's um, business strategy, internal business strategy, and how that relates to the the greater brewing industry as it as it exists right now so when i okay so way back before dinosaurs i'm trying to think back at when i got into the brew game it's 2006 and um i was evangelized to beer by my first brewing job which was you know part-time on the packaging right getting hamburger hands uh when i was a grad student we took a lunch break we were bottling oatmeal stout and that was like the first time i had a beer that i actually um like realized i actually love beer you know so that changed me and i realized that that there was like this choice there was stuff that i had no idea existed or like for a regular beer i just didn't care you know i didn't in college like i mean at that point in time i could it was probably like two times in my life i'd been drunk or something you know or even like in and and the number of times I actually enjoyed a beer was zero up to that point. I mean, that honest opinion, I'd never to that point in my life enjoyed a beer. I could, I could care less. It's disgusting. Um, which sucked because I like a really sensitive palate and I love food and I could pick things out. And it's not like I didn't want to enjoy beer. It just wasn't there. And then that stout, like now I'm here, right? I had that one beer. That was everything. That was the inflection point in my life probably. Um, because I just, all of a sudden my buddy and I that I was working with, we go to Buffalo Wild Wings after, uh, a bartending shift at the brewery and I, Hey, wait, what else you got? What, what's this? What's that? Pig's ass Porter. What's this one? What's that one? This one. And then realizing, okay, I kind of like these and I don't, you know, those are okay. And this is what I like. And that's what I don't like. And then I have this like option and, and I'm talking about like growing up, my parents used to have like maybe a six pack of Miller Lite in their fridge for like the one time in three years, one of our relatives would come and visit. So it was always like four years old and 20 years old. Like we didn't drink. We didn't have, you know, like maybe a half a glass, quarter glass of wine at Thanksgiving. Like that was it, man. There was just no desire. No, I, no, I didn't care. And all of a sudden I cared. And then the fact that there was like a whole world all around me that I was blind to, I think it just twanged some string of my soul, some strand of my soul deep down that, you know, the vibrations never stopped where I was like, well, I'm so ignorant to this. Like, what what else am I stupid about? And then I was like, well, everything really dummy. Um, but I couldn't stop sharing like, cause I was at the brewery. Right. And I started actually caring. And then once I had that, I started painting like, well, what's, what's the brewer doing? Like, what are you, what are you doing over there in that little that big ass piece of equipment. What are you doing there? And what's happening there? At this point, I already had like a chemistry degree and a bio degree. So all of a sudden I would go home and read at night. He, the one guy gave me a book. And so I would read or I'd search and I would be like, well, this is this and this. And then I go back the next day. I'm like, oh my God, he's, he's doing it right there. 
He's doing it right there. Like, I'm watching it happen. And, and then, if that brewer's been doing it for more than two years, he's like, I'm pissing in it. Don't fucking talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. Right. Actually, I'm our first brewer, my, uh, my boss, about a year, not even a year to me being there, he left to go open his own brewery down the street, So, which he still owns. And so, yeah, so he got to that point and he turned, you know, and went. Uh, so anyways, uh, my point being to extrapolate from that is that Back then, there were like maybe 1,500 breweries in the U.S., maybe, which was well below the number of breweries that existed before Prohibition. So the idea that craft beer existed as a thing was still an evangelization topic. That was like the only thing to talk about for craft beer was you have a choice, you know, like this thing called beer has existed throughout history because then I started learning about like how beer has its fingers woven into all of civilization, which is kind of like where carbon four comes from. Like the only grounding to carbon four is that carbon is the fundamental element for organic life. Beer is the fundamental element for civilization. Yeah. How beer saved the world. That's it. That's that. And that is it. Yeah. And you want to chuckle now because of our American culture, but that's like, like learn about history. It's everywhere. It might have a different name across the world in different places, but that's it. It, it has been a driving force in civilization. So that kind of spoke to me too. I learned about stuff. I was doing the thing, telling people you have a choice, learn about it. And that's how to have a, that was how to be successful as a craft brewery was the first craft brewery dive had already happened like in the early nineties. And actually like right when Yellowstone was opening was like right when the, it's like 95, 96. And that's right when Yellowstone Valley Brewing opened was like right during the first downturn of craft beer. I was 12. You know? So yeah, there we go. And uh, so it, um, uh, so it was, the craft brewing was bouncing back from them. So we were like one of two little breweries in, in Billings, Montana. And we were like a cultural hub. People came down there. The college came there. It was a cool place to be, and it was cool to have. The, and then I, and then my parents, like, what are you doing? You just paid fifty k for a master's degree, and now you're working at a brewery, you know, idiot. And I'm like, I it was because I'm stupid. And they're like, I know. What are we gonna do about it? And I was like, Well, why don't you come out here? And one time, my dad came out to hang out for a weekend um, to Montana from Wisconsin, and and he had one too many smoked porters, you know. But he enjoyed enjoyed himself, and I think there was a part of him in there that was like. I get it. I get it. I don't know how you're going to make a living. I don't know what you're going to do with yourself in your future, but I get it. There's magic in the air. And, um, and so like one memory I shared with somebody just the other day, like very clearly, I think that felt like a magical inflection point was, Oh, it was, Oh, so I I was talking to Link. I was one of the F-16 pilots. He was telling me about one of his last flights. He'd been flying F-16s for years and years. And now they're going to the F-35s. And he knew this was like one of his, he knew his last flight in this airframe was coming up. And so he started very much paying attention the last six months, you know, of like trying to take it all in of that experience because he's never going to have it again. And he's like the view at the cockpit and this, 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 this. He was like the one time they deployed and they were flying across Canada and they were flying in the Northern Lights, you know, and you're in a canopy where like from the hips up, you're in the air in a glass fish fishbowl, you know, in the Northern Lights and a jet flying, whatever. So he's sharing all these things with me. And I was like, yeah, you know, in brewing, I think one of those moments happened to me where I was brewing in this old converted like car garage, like like uh, a service center, you know, and the windows were high up on the on the wall. They faced east and I'm mashing in. It's six in the morning. The sun's just coming up. And as the sunlight comes right across the window, 
shooting like God's fingers, like light beams across the brewery while I'm mashing in. And I can see the individual drops from the hydrator going through the air. And I can see each one and like the smell of the malt and the mash and like Patrick smiling because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, Patrick's that... smiling because he's thinking about oxidation. Yeah, yeah right. No, no, actually that- uh, the Those smell, droplets are so small. The smell of uh, mashing in is uh, like, orgasmic so i had like flogging molly i had pumping through my headphones the sun's coming up the sounds the sights everything aligned in in me at that moment and i was like i want to live this moment over and over for the rest of my life i don't care how old i am this is where i'm at the smell of mashing in is uh like one of the greatest smells in the entire world to me um i've i have my own stories of it with Maybe when I come back, I'll tell you guys about it. But they were great, and I love that smell. And coming into the brewery, I love it. I've had people tell me that, like, oh, man, a brewery smells like dog food. And I was like, it's the best fucking dog food I've ever smelled. Yeah, <laughs> smells like magic. Mark and, like, I will forever, like, even if I got out of brewery, brewing, I will always appreciate the smell of mashing in. That, that smell is... It's never gotten old. It's, like it's, it will yeah. never get old. It, like... Uh, yeah, I mean, it won't ever get old. I think I know people who don't, who didn't like that smell, and they weren't around that long. I feel yeah. like you have to like that it speaks first, to you or it doesn't. Yeah, it's like sweet, and you can kind of taste what it's gonna be like when it's done. Yeah, and it's like the smell of mash is way better than the taste of wort. Oh, hundred percent for sure, for sure. I and. And, and the thing too, and like Arbery is just small enough too that you can be up in the office in the QC lab, which is like kid a corner from the brew house in the production space. And within 60 seconds of them starting to mash, you know, it's happening. You oh. can smell and taste it. It's just everywhere. And, and you, and every time over the years, I've been like, Oh, there's a mash. And I take a couple of seconds to just take that in. And, and it never, never, never gets old. And, and, Oh, I love that part. I mean, that's just like, that's the start of something that could be very, very beautiful. What will be if you care enough. It's an to addiction. Make it beautiful. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's that first powerful smell that you're going to get to no one knows what that smell smells like except for us. Uh, and then thousands of people are going to drink that beer later. There's two smells on a brew day mashing in. And if you have first wort hops, as it's running in, you add that first wort and you put your head in the kettle when it's all empty and you get all that first little hit of it. And I always tell people like, that's the best an IPA is ever going to smell. You know, so I've had a lot of friends join me for a brew date. I'm like, put your head in there. And they're like kind of smelling. I'm like, no, put your head in the kettle, lean into there. And I'm like, take it in because that's the best this beer will ever you smell. You can't experience this unless you violate OSHA regulations. <laughs> right, exactly. That's how good it is. That's uh, how I mean, worth it. Your story reminds me of, of when I was working at Otter Creek in Vermont. I was there for, for 10 months. It was a temporary brewing job because they had, they had two different brewers taking long-term time off for different things. One was getting married to a woman from Germany. One was, was going to Siebel's diploma program. So I was a, a fill-in brewer out there, and uh, oh, what the hell year was it? I think it was 20, 2007. You know what's funny is that earlier you were saying uh, 2013 was when you started, and I was like... No, that sure. was that was Tacoma. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 I was like, I'm pretty sure your numbers don't line up. <laughs> right? Yeah, but by a lot. Um, but first shift, 
and I would alternate between first shift, second shift, every once in a while, like doing a dedicated cellar day. But by and large, the the brew house team like did the cellaring. Like it was a frantic, frantic day. Um, but the brew house had just giant windows behind it. And so I would start at six in the morning and the packaging crew, I don't think they came until seven 30. So I don't remember if the window faced the sun, but I got to watch the sunrise in some capacity, just with me being the only person in the brewery smelling mash. It was magical. That is my favorite time yeah. to be in the brew by myself before the sun's up and watching the sun up and nobody's there yet. And just go stand outside and watch it or just, you see it. And then like, that little bit of peace right there, right before the chaos hits, is so right. the second Unreal. mash of a day at Octopi, and it was the first mash of the day at Bent River, uh, was when the sun would come up. And I there was a lot of times where I would sit when I was at uh, Bent River, would sit on the patio and watch the sun come up while smelling that beautiful smell. Uh, and then the, there was a lot of times where I was the second, you know, second mash in at Octopi. And the sun would be coming up, get that early sunset, early sunrise, and something about it, man. Like the the yang to that yang is when you're on second shift, closing out at two in the morning, and you're just like, I fucking hate everybody. Yeah, when, <laughs> I'm running when, a CIP. When somebody told me that uh, Matt Arbuckle, one of uh, Joe and I's friends, uh, he worked with us for a little bit at Octopi, and he said one time, he's like, I uh, I worked overnight shift in the winter time. Um, I didn't see the sun for like two and a half months. And I was like, yeah, no, that would. It's called seasonal affective disorder. <laughs> yeah. That would make me hate a lot of things too. Seasonal affect. <laughs> seasonal affect disorder. But I mean, like, early morning mashings are probably. That's the best. What gods are made out of. <laughs> like, Yeah. that If that doesn't hook you in, nothing will for sure. So, so yeah. So I have my moments early on, right? Uh, John's giving me a look like, let's redirect. Uh, redirect no. Ah, so, years ago, right? no, um, so. We got like 20 minutes of material out of this right, like hour and a half. Right. So, so when, when I was starting off being a brewer, uh, evangelizing the fact that there were choices was the game. That was it. You need to bring something. By the time I opened K4 in late 2012, 2013, that's, about a year before Paul Gadsa, I think, famously said in 2014, at the opening speech of the Craft Brewers Conference was, the number of breweries is growing and growing and growing, and that was a very good thing for the Brewers Association. Everybody was happy about it, but his take-home message was, don't F it up. You know, he, he used the real one on there, but he, like, that was the keynote speech. Because brewers are very clean mouth people. Exactly. It's something called brewery mouth. I'm trying to work myself out of it. At, at that moment in time, and I'm, I'm glad that I was wrong, but at that moment in time when he gave that speech about how quality was getting shitty in the craft brewing industry, the first thing that went through my mind is the Ministry of Magic is interfering at Hogwarts <laughs> because the, the craft brewing industry is at a point right then that Big craft brewers and small craft brewers were starting to become very different entities. And at that moment, I was like, this is where the Brewers Association is siding with the big craft breweries. And that didn't happen. So that was good. Oh, because, yeah, they had spent 10, 15 years, these folks, like they had spent a whole career, almost a half a career, building up craft brewing. And they got to the point of like the quality and they'd taken quality people from the big breweries too, like down to them. And then they worked, they worked to tell people that there was a choice 
and they'd already been through a complete industry downturn and revival. And so when then like thousands of other small neighborhood breweries came through and people started to wake up that there was a choice. And his message was like, if the choice is crap, it's going to tank everyone. It's going to pull everyone down. So I see like definitely see both sides on there. Yeah, because that was the moment too when there was three, 4,000 breweries. Like right about then is when he gave that speech. We had 5% and, of the total market. There, you go. And so there was, there was actually like a small singularity of gravity now happening around craft beer that actually gave the Brewers Association some like real clout. They really had some real funds, some real abilities, resources, you know. Yeah, and the cynical like, part of me, doing? and the cynical part of me is like, who pays the Brewers Association's bills? Like, it's not right. the little tap room. Yep, it's not the little tap room. But yeah. you know what? Well, I think I was wrong about that too because of the the long tail of the market. You know, you, so you talked yeah. to, uh, well, I'm not going to say his name, but my old brewmaster from Big Brewery, and he talks about how much he doesn't like the Brewers Association because of that 2012 to 20 like 15 movement where they when yeah the big breweries were paying their bills but they were pushing more for craft than anything else um and how maybe they felt a little backstabbed on the big side for sure. Well, and every time he tells me, I'm like, well, I don't fucking care. It worked really well for us. <laughs> I will say this. I went to the 2011 Craft Brewers Conference in San Francisco, and it was fun, and it was good, and I'm glad I went. I learned a lot that year, but it is night and day with what the Craft Brewers Conference is now with a much bigger bankroll. It's like a carnival now, and back then, it was like there was 5,000 people maybe in like the hotel ballroom, you know, it was like one little section. Like what you see is like what they do for like the hop, like the Tom Shellhammer presentation basically right now. Like maybe half that many people, that was the entire CBC and the entire like made like opening talk, you know, and all the rooms were small. The the uh the industry show floor was like very small and like very together. So like, you know, like you, you, it's it's kind of like uh, and it's an sudden, addiction there. The more the more the money it's there, now it's a spectacle, and then you have to keep funding it. And, and blah, then all blah, blah. of a sudden, you didn't have to have a master degree to go there. And a bunch of functioning alcoholics figured out how to make a bunch of really good beer. And then a bunch of fucking fucking functioning alcoholics figured out how to like I don't know do a bunch of science because yep. most ADD kids had that, and those were the kids who were, showed up there. And then yeah, man, I don't know. Anytime I'm with a bunch of craft brewers, if I'm with like professional brewers, I'm like, God, I feel like I have to like act a certain way around you. Like you wear a polo. (laughs) I wear a flannel. Like Joe's got a pullover sweatshirt, you know, like zip up sweatshirt. Yeah. We're we're kind of trash people who are clean trash. When you really, really get into it, we figured out the thing that we're really good at. Um, and then the smart ones figured out all the math and science behind it and had a good time with it. But in the end, I don't get to spend a lot of time away from my wife and kid. And I need that sometimes. And, uh, when I'm around a bunch of guys who nerd out about beer, I'm probably going to black out for three days and (laughs) come to and be like, dude, I learned a lot. (laughs) Also the gay nineties, great bar. (laughs) I super learned a lot. Well, I think if you extrapolate from there, like, okay, so when you say, you know, functioning alcoholics figured this out, how to figure it out. Well, 
but why? Like, how could that happen if it wasn't bankroll, that the commerce wasn't there underneath it, you know, the economics of it wasn't there to support it. So that kind of like it reflects upon what the brewing industry was. So like that changed the business plan, the way you could be a successful brewery, right? First, it was evangelizing about choice. Next, it became quality. And then as the number of breweries went and the ideas kind of exploded, because then you could just have like a good beer program on a year, you know, and offer some variety and have like a monthly release, you know, and keep things fresh. Now that people be, knew that they had a choice, they expected a choice. But now that they had a choice, the the edge of of that heroin is novelty. And now it became like number of experiences you could have. So like new breweries coming out said, you know what then? I'm just going to have, we'll have like a lot of choices, which is great. So it's just a different business model, you know? And, and so then you could have more choice and have novel experiences and and then they don't necessarily need to be quality over time. There's just more. So now there's like all different ways to try to set up a brewery or be successful, but it's hard to know as any like bigger organization, like which one to really focus on and do because the pie is chopped into a lot of slices. Yeah, I feel like I, I feel like that became like it became something that people chased and it it didn't pan out in the end or it panned out for a little it has while to happen naturally. Yeah. Cause what happens is, you know, you, you recognize that customers want choice, like constant novelty, new things all the time. Beer Pokemon. And so, right. And so you start making a million different things, but where they get that choice is the number of breweries. So you get the number of breweries, which is just astronomical, all suddenly pursuing the same strategy. And, and what they do, they just make hazy IPAs. It's just noise. <laughs> it just becomes noise. And so you're trying to do this thing that you know people want, but you can't be heard and seen and everybody's doing the same thing. So, you know, the at the at the technical conference, the keynote speaker was talking about distribution strategy and how it's going very much toward streamlining again. And that makes a lot of sense because the number of breweries creates the choice. Like each individual brewery doesn't need to create the choice except in their tap room. And and I think there what the important part is, and that's kind of speaks to K4's business strategy looking forward as to what we're going to do for our own beer is knowing what your voice is. Like, what is your voice? Where did you start? What brought you to beer? And what beer do you like? Because early, early, early on, when we were trying to set this up, my dad asked me way back when, when he was trying to help me write a business plan, he goes, but Ryan, how do I know what's a good beer? And my answer was always the same. Well, did you like it? You know, because you're you're deciding, like, we can get into technical quality, different stuff, but in the consumer, if they enjoyed it and they connected with it, that makes it a good beer for them. And at the end of the day, if they're willing to exchange their money for it, that's the thing that counts because that's what keeps a business moving forward. You know, so it's not like you pander to the simple part, but it's like, know your voice and be good at the things that you actually love doing. And if hyper novelty is something that's very, very satisfying to what you're doing, that's fantastic. And for us, like looking forward, we started off wanting to make like malt bombs and hop grenades. So when we started K4, the business plan was three, four super malty beers. Cause that's the kind of brewer I was. That was my brewing voice was really malty beer. And I also enjoyed IPAs as well, but you know, like I thought the novelty was there. There's always something new to do with IPAs. Like the, the, the ideas never stop. So that's when we launched. It was going to be mainstays for to meet Wisconsin culture, and then like a rotating IPA. The first one we did for IPA was Silk Scorpion Black IPA. The second IPA we did in that rotation was Fantasy Factory, 
And I am eternally grateful for the fact that we caught a tiger by the tail in that sense and and have able to make as much fantasy factory as we do. It's it's fun to brew and it's delicious, but that's why that that's why that IPA is really malty. Is that that was my voice. So we we've decided over this last year, we tried a year of like hyper novelty for ourselves. I think we made a lot of really great beers. I think we discovered a lot of cool stuff. We made a lot of lagers that we were like, oh my goodness, this is going to stick around because it's malty and it's delicious. It's simple and it's we connect with it. We've made so, some of the best lagers I've ever made in my life. Yeah, the hellas we've had, that changed my life for sure. That changed my outlook for sure. So looking forward, we're like, hang on, what are some of the beers that we've done that people even now this year, since we cut them out the rotation this year that we get hit, you know, hit up on for like Lady Luck? Or Radicats, you know, like, hey, where did that go? I love that you guys did. And it was like, wait a second, that was our voice. Part we, of it, though, was so we, let's we get were back losing to our ass making those beers. Yeah. Make it you, you lost no, your voice and we your ass and you're in trouble, right? You weren't losing your ass making those beers. I, I don't say we because I wasn't here at the time, but you were losing your ass distributing those beers. At 100%. Yeah, yeah we were. So this, this year looking forward, we're going to say, what are we good at? Malt bombs and hop grenades. So, you know, we like more quarterly releases of things that, that we have loved and enjoyed and that people have known us for, you know, people didn't know us for hyper novelty, but they knew us for like lady luck. And consistency. Consistency. 10 so, years of consistency. That's what people. Know. Yep. So that, that's, where we're going to go. And in fact, one of our, our sales guys let us, he told us a while this not too long ago. And he was like, well, people perceive you as like a big brewery. And we're like, but we're not. And he goes, yeah, I know that, but that's like people see Fantasy Factory like in a ubiquitous sense out there. And it's like, well, that's something we've worked very hard to do and we want it to continue. It's like, okay, if that's how you, they, they kind of see you, then then that's, you know, but if it also meshes with part of your voice, then you're okay. And then we're also going to be, you know, filling up the other half of our production capabilities with, um, you know, like Wisco Pop Soda that we are doing now as a house brand, but also then... Any you know contract brewing to help other folks who have smaller breweries that 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 want to do small size batches that we know we can we can nail and execute and say you know what if we get to survive as a company keeping our voice and helping other folks in a small sense we can add it all up to fill our production capacity and that helps our economic model that's what we're going to focus on because the the ground underneath our feet isn't as solid you know as it was before so. Go back to what, you know, go back to the old stuff, but it's like, find some stability somewhere. Right. Go back to the old stuff, but don't expect a distributor to take 600 cases of it, I think is the the real answer. It's like, let's get a little bit of this out. Let's get people excited about it. And then let's not try to ride it until it dies. You know, I think that's the the thing right there is, you know, like realize what, what gets people excited and don't give them too much of it. Right. So Chris Farmand, like you said, keynote speaker at the technical conference from Small Batch Standard, he's a an accountant and works with a lot of craft breweries. And he's he's worked as a CPA doing other stuff too. But what's really cool, what he does is that he has worked really, really well as focusing on craft breweries. He can aggregate that data. So you can actually see his clients that are doing well, not doing well. And so you can extrapolate actually really good data about your metrics and what works for when breweries are actually cash flowing and when they're successful and when they're in trouble. So he can give a lot of good insight. And his advice this year was like, you know, turning more towards the retail, like make sure you have a strong retail game, which again is why, you know, we have excellent food now. Like I I think after COVID and before before COVID, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, it would be, you know, not difficult, but we had a full house for dinner. We were an option for people. We had something great there. I loved eating. My friends and family love coming here. You know, we had great food. And then 
the world kind of changed, consumer habits have kind of changed, and now it's kind of understanding where is the consumer now, what do they want, making sure we have a great retail presence, a great retail experience, including good food again. So we have good food again, we have great novelty inside our own four walls, and we're trying to make sure that the beer that goes out like Fantasy Factory that we brew a lot of is the best it's ever been, and that every day we brew it, it's better than the day before. And that we're, we're critical of it, we're chasing it, we don't take it for granted. And then we try to invest in like Midwesty, like a, a Pilsner as a flagship and Hawk Jones and, and, and do that. And then also keep our voice, but then also help other brewers find their voice and offer quality, quality uh, selections as well. And if, and, if, and if those things help us keep our doors open, then fantastic. I think Fantasy Factory has been like the best, well, I'm going to sound pretty full of myself when I say this. <laughs> uh, but I think that Fantasy Factory, we've spent a lot of time this year on it, making, getting it to be great again. And I feel like it's probably the best it's been since when I first had it. Like, I'm really excited about it. I pour myself a Fantasy Factory now. I One of the things I was telling somebody the other day was like, they're like, what legacy do you think you have when you finally like walk away after a year of Carbon 4? And I was like, Fantasy Factory was a... F- a four point or a three point seven on untapped, untapped. Now it's a three point seven one, and that's like a cosmic shift. No, it's it's actually, it's actually a three point eight, and I'm like, there we go. Forty eight thousand people checking that beer in. That's that takes a, a lot that to move that needle. One is a big deal, and and I'm like, yeah, man. I've had people text me and be like, dude, I can taste it. You guys, you and Joe have spent some time to try to make make this beer awesome again and i'm really excited about it because part of me moving to wisconsin was to be in this beer scene specifically fantasy factory you know you know the the notion of fantasy factory is as a thing that people recognize but not carbon forward it's something that we've kind of touched on a handful of times and you know when you say that people think a carbon four is a big brewery like i think of that being as a as a driving reason why like i've never being from Madison, I've always associated carbon four with carbon four, you know, there's no like, Oh, I'm, there's this beer brand. I don't know where it came from, but the idea of fantasy factory being like the Wisconsin equivalent of Montucky cold snacks just cracks me up. (laughs) Yeah. I think every bar should have spotted cow and fantasy factory, and then you can fill it in from there, you know? Yeah. I mean like Jared, like Jared Jaskowski, my old brewmaster made the, uh, Moon Man, named after his cat. That mm-hmm. that beer to me is uh, the IPA of you know uh, Wisconsin. And one time, me and him were talking about it, and he said, uh, "Well, how does it feel to like have your you know to have your name now on Fantasy Factory, which is like one of the biggest IPAs." I was like, I don't know, man. How does it feel to like have your cat's name on one of the biggest pale ales in this town? And he's like, probably about the same, man. <laughs> probably pretty <laughs> like, darn good. Yeah, pretty so, good. So, yeah, I mean, like I'm excited about the last year I spent here. I learned a lot. I did a lot. And I feel like uh, I walk away pushing a lot to try to make better beer. And Fantasy Factory is always going to hold another special place in my heart. And I'm probably going to get kicked out of here on the great taste this year. So, <laughs> no, nah, we'll just, we got your wheelbarrow with your name on it, bud. Don't worry about that. It's like, oh man, he's drunk. We'll again. even put a pillow in the wheelbarrow, too. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to the Carbon Four podcast, an unhinged brewery tour. 
visit the tap room here in Madison, Wisconsin. Be sure to mention the K4 podcast to get a BOGO beer deal or visit carbon4.com or wiscopopsoda.com. Enter the promo code unhinged to receive 10% off your purchase and follow Carbon4 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Send in your questions, comments for the team. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.